Hey there, this is Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. This morning, on the way to the school bus, my almost 11-year-old son was explaining to me that if you shrunk an elephant down to the size of a mouse, it would shiver, then die because of its slow mitochondria due to something called the rule of squared threes, which he also proceeded to explain. Then he explained something about neutron stars, claiming that they are essentially a giant atom, which I don't think is actually true. Then he started on another topic, and I explained that this was all very wonderful, but I had learned all the science my brain could hold at 7.15 a.m. Sadly, my own journey as a scientist ended in high school biology when I put the dissected tail of a fetal pig on a toothpick and said hors d'oeuvre to several classmates, which earned me an F for the project. But happily, there are people like my guest today, astronomer Michelle Thaler and my son Emre, who are excellent at explaining scientific wonders to dumb cops like myself. Michelle is, let me take a deep breath here, the Assistant Director of Science for Communications at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And her inspiring perspective on science and humanity, which she shares in her TV shows and her podcast, Orbital Path, makes me wish that biology teacher had had a better sense of humor. Welcome to Think Again, Michelle. How old did you say your son was? He's 11. Well, he'll be 11 yeah. in January. That's some pretty cool stuff for an 11-year-old to know. Uh, he's watching this thing. Have you? I'm sure you know about this thing. Kirkazat. Have you seen this on, yeah, on YouTube? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is like an animated, you know, science explainy thing, but it also gets into like transhumanism and all this stuff, and actually sometimes gets into some values that I'm a little, yeah, transhumanism, for example. I'm not sure. I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally on board with. I guess you know, transhumanism is. It's one, one of the few things I'm, I'm actually optimistic about right now. To me, it, does, it, it really does seem like kind of a natural stage in human evolution that eventually we're going to leave behind the, you know, the, the meat puppets that we are yeah. and, uh, and actually be something a little bit more stable and rigorous and don't die so quickly. At risk of this becoming a self-referential kind of meta-meta episode, <laughs> I do recall that on a previous episode yeah. of Think Again, we had a surprise clip of yours in which you were talking about this idea about people augment and how we've augmented ourselves for centuries, glasses, the glasses I'm wearing. The thing that I really struggle against when people talk about transhumanism and the idea of putting ourselves into, into designed and created bodies is that um, we wouldn't bring all of the the emotions, all the creativity, you know, all right. of the passion. Because people have this, even people that, that are not particularly religious seem to have this holdout that that's kind of a ghost in the machine with us, right? That that's not really down to just, you know, neurons firing. There's something kind of a little right. more squishy about it. You know, maybe you need, you know, something organic to produce these feelings. And I I, I don't actually buy that. I guess, well, I, I hear that. But the my issue is that the people who seem to be most jazzed about transhumanism and, and about, yeah, becoming cyborgs and upgrading our consciousness and whatever, whatever, strike me as kind of the least interested in those more kind of like ineffable, soupy, romantic sides of humanity. Like the ones I hear going on and on about it just seem a bit removed really? from the stuff that, I don't know, that moves my heart. To Do you be think that, that this is some it. way for them to get away from that? They sort of, <laughs> they'd rather not have those squishy bits of being human? Uh, maybe. I mean, maybe, you know, I mean, we're talking in very big generalities here, but like maybe, and I, so I wish I could point to some of these individuals, right? But well, sure, Ray Kurzweil. 
you know, I don't know what he's like at home, but, you know, I just get a feeling that a lot of these folks might be somewhere on the spectrum, which like, okay, but like that somehow they can relate more to, I don't know, the logical and scientific concepts around these things than to necessarily what the social, pro-social human future might look like. Everything about that is just too narrowly defined. Science, to me, has become a really emotional thing. I mean, something that feels like a really good bedtime story or can give you goosebumps or it can help you deal with the, with the death of a loved one in some ways. And, uh, you know, all the transhumanism stuff, too. It, I guess when you say you're on the spectrum, you know, people think that if you are a little bit diagnosable autistic or not, that you become sort of more emotionally withdrawn and less emotional. And I, I don't know what spectrum I'm on. I have a lot of the classic conditions where I'm amazed how easily scientific facts go into my brain. I mean, you can tell me something, I can read a press release, and it is in there. It is in there for good. I, can't, I can't get rid of it. But then some things I'm terrible at, like tying knots. I can't remember how to tie knots. Names, faces are hard. Uh, bright lights, you know, loud sounds. I, I have to retreat. So I see what you're saying. You have some of those what would be yeah. like classic markers, but, uh, but I am so emotional though. I mean, I mean the, the the big thing for me, you know, the big struggle in life seriously is that, you know, I have all of this this love and this drive to connect and I, I don't know how to express it appropriately. I mean, it, it scares right. people, right? You know, it scares people when you say I want to know everything about you. And, you know, that's how I survive at parties. You find, <laughs> you find one person. And I think last time we were at a party together yes. and I was literally in the closet. Remember, I was actually in the closet yes. in the bedroom. Yes, yes. Yeah, because that's about all I can handle in a party. And, and a couple people at a time would come into the closet and we could have some really good conversations. Yeah, I get that. I don't know that I'm like that with the scientific facts, but I'm certainly like that at a party in terms yeah. of one at a time. It should be like deep and intense or at least just very connected in some way. Um, and I do have a hard time with all the kind of going about and just like whatever networking or that well, people it's, do. It's, it's interesting that you call yourself a dumb cop comparing <laughs> yourself to a scientist because that that's another thing. I mean, if, if you don't happen to have an interest or science or a particular natural ability for it, you know, I, I hope you haven't gotten the impression that scientists think other people are just stupid. I mean, the first thing I started writing was artsy humanist or something, <laughs> right? And then I was like, so I'm labeling myself to distance myself from the thing that I don't actually understand all that well. And <laughs> right. so I'm like, let me just call myself a dumb cop. Because for this show and in working at Big Think for eight years now, I've encountered a lot of scientific ideas. I've wrapped my mind around, you know, tried to wrap my mind around electromagnetism and read some of the like history of physics and the study of quantum physics and so on. So, you know, like in a broad conceptual sense, I've started to understand a lot of those things, but in large part, that's due to storytellers like yourself that are able to kind of bridge that divide, mainly because I think I'm, I'm sort of enumerate. Math, math left me behind early on. And yeah. that makes it very hard to follow into some of these crazy realms. I had to sort of come at it from the other way. Math classes left me behind. I never, never was good at math classes. Um, I don't know what I wasn't getting, but somehow that, that group learning of math, I didn't get good grades. The closest I ever came to failing a class was differential equations in college. That took me about three times to kind of get through that. Well, you made it that 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 far at least. <laughs> I, I I was out at trigonometry, so. But then it's funny. I mean, it's come back. It's come back the other way. I mean, I mean now 
since it's been decades since I've taken a math test. And I was just doing one of my podcasts the other day, and I was trying to explain something about black holes. And I was trying to use some math because the math was so clear. Oh my God. I mean, this just makes so much sense. Look at it. It's, it's right there in front of you. You know, math should be the easiest thing in the world. Right. There are so many other more complex things, like having a conversation, right? Like, like, like navigating around New York City, whatever. Mathematics, when done properly, when you do it step by step, and you don't lose everybody, and you don't intimidate everybody, the whole point of math is it is the simplest you can make something. And now... I, I love math. I mean, I mean, the idea that I, my, my producers are kind of slapping me and you know turning hoses on me. It's like stop, stop, stop <laughs> with the math. But we're not we're not doing a podcast where you're going to describe math. You know, you're not going to do that. People because yeah. people are phobic. So many so many of us have had these experiences and never kind of came back and made peace with math. You know, <laughs> yeah. so so yeah. like so there's this idea that you're going to alienate your audience. When, you know, I, I I would love a podcast from you, like solely about math. <laughs> I feel like I would learn a lot more math. Well, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you get to things like, like the other thing your uh, your son was talking about were new, new, neutron stars and the idea that a neutron star is really a big atom, which actually isn't far off. I mean, if anything could possibly be a big atom, it would be a neutron star. So okay. th- there's there's a lot there that's true. I think atom. I, I you know I I know about nucleuses. I know about strong nuclear and weak nuclear force. I know that they're surrounded by electrons and protons. A neutron star is composed of what? Like? I guess it's probably more correct to say a neutron star is a giant nucleus. Okay. So so don't picture electrons whizzing around it or anything like that. But 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 just the nucleus, which. I mean, b- being an astronomer, you define elements by the number of protons and neutrons. In space, electrons are usually gone. <laughs> Things are usually <laughs> ionized. You know, right. Most of the universe is plasma, which is ad- atoms that have gotten so hot they've lost most of their electrons. So the idea of the heart of an atom being the protons and neutrons, and, and that that's really all a neutron star is. Mm. And it actually has the density of an atomic nucleus, okay. which should frighten you. I mean, something macroscopic, something you can see with a telescope thousands of light years away, that thing Thing is one of the it's, it's one of the most amazing monsters in the universe and it's real we observe these things my mind is routinely blown by the fact that neutron stars are real I think I was reading somewhere or I don't know where I heard this but that a spoonful of neutron star matter ought to be about as heavy as a car which actually sounded light to me I was uh, yeah like, actually that's not right yeah so yeah, I was so, like <laughs> that should be heavier than that yeah. exactly it is yeah. heavier so yeah. I think you're thinking about something called a white dwarf star oh, okay which is which is something that doesn't have enough mass to be a neutron star. And that's about right. A teaspoonful would weigh about as much as, say, an 18-wheel truck. For a neutron star, a teaspoonful of neutron star would have as much mass as Mount Everest. All right. And and, and that's and probably that's the, just insane, right? Yeah, most likely the teaspoon would not well, hold would up. <laughs> go right through the earth. I mean, if you had a little bit of neutron star material, it's so much denser than the earth. It, it would just, it would, it would fall right through the planet. You know, eventually the gravity would stop and it would come out the other side. It would just keep Swiss cheesing the planet until it stopped. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, I mean, that is, that is mind boggling. And it's, you know, and this is the, this is the other conversation that we sort of artsy humanists always end up having with scientists, which is that, you know, contemplating something like that, a part of me goes, wow, it just seems very strange and 
cold and terrifying. That's not your reaction, obviously, no, or you I'm, wouldn't I'm, have spent your life doing this. I'm, I'm interested. I mean, we, we don't need to turn this into a therapy session. This is free therapy yeah. for me. So wh- Science why, therapy. Why do, you think, why do you think your reaction is fear? I mean, does it does it make you feel small? Well, it's, it, I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, so it's not, I don't think it's that my ego is so enormous that I want to be the center of the universe, I guess. But there is beauty for sure, like vast, incredible beauty in some of the images that we we see from from space. For whatever reason, I'm drawn to like organicity. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be humans. It doesn't have to be me. It's funny. <laughs> as you were talking and I was thinking about, you know, why, why would that be something that makes you afraid? And to, to tell you the truth, I, I think I think I sort of have it. You know, you know the, the old the, the old joke about how you could ask a fish what it feels like to be wet, and they're like, "Wet? What is that?" Right? Yeah. When you're so surrounded by something, you never even know it's there. And I think I could honestly say that's me in fear. I think I am afraid of all of that. I think it does elicit responses of fear. I think in my life. I'm almost not aware of being afraid anymore because I'm afraid all the damn time. <laughs> I'm laughing, but that's not funny. Well, yeah. I, you know, no, this actually isn't anything all that tragic. Um, I, I mean, because I have a lot of fun. And, and I, think, I think pushing against the fear and who told me this? I, I think it was actually an astronomer that I, I, I met in graduate school who I believe is also sort of represented as one of the characters in some of the Heinlein books. His name is, is Yoji, oh. Yoji Kondo. Oh, cool. And um, I think I was admitting to him that the study of astronomy and taking all these physics tests and all this pressure was very frightening to me. And he said, you know, if you want to have a good life, you run toward what scares you. Mm. I totally agree with that. But I but I will, will say also that that statement has to be qualified in some ways. Like fire scares me, but if I run toward it, I will get burned, you know? Each of us is on a kind of a trajectory. And like, I feel like I know, that is to say, I don't want to spend the rest of my life avoiding neutron stars or whatever, but- um, <laughs> that, That's pretty easy to do, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, right. But but I, I do want to know about things that I don't know about. But for individuals, the things that frighten them toward which they individually need to move might differ. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, so an actor might struggle with stage fright, but need to move toward getting on stage, but not necessarily toward a neutron star. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I agree that. I, I mean, hu- human minds are different, and they they latch onto different things. And um, you know, for example, my my wonderful mother has absolutely no interest in astronomy. I mean, none. Your mom. Oh, my God. I mean, she's she's a real human-centered person. You know, she's really into human rights. She, she was involved in the in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Gotcha. And she's, she's been kind to me. I mean, this, this isn't a, you know, a horrible mother story. Right. But, you know, she said to me, and, and this has borne itself out, she, I mean, this means absolutely nothing to her. She, she cannot figure out how I made a living out of, out of studying this stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, we, this has happened over over and over again that I've tried to, oh, mom, let me tell you about the phases of the moon. Here, I'm going to get some balls and flashlight. And then mom's just like, what the hell? You know, she, she, she doesn't care one little bit. That's probably how you became such a good science explainer <laughs> is by my trying to, never worked. because every child wants their parents yeah. to love the thing that they love. My son wants me to love what he's watching right, on YouTube. So. Right. I totally agree with you that people are, yeah. are different. We, we, we have different interests. Our brains clue on to different things. And um, I think that's lovely. I mean, I think the, the one of the most wonderful things that I've sort of had to accept in me, because people will say, did you, were you inspired by somebody? Did you have a really good teacher? Did you have a mentor growing mm. up? 
And the answer is actually no. Um, I came out of the womb, as far as anyone can tell, <laughs> wanting to know about astronomy. My my mom said that she would see me. I'd be trying to get out of the house when I could walk, about when I could walk, when I was about you're two years old, getting a toddler three years old. I wanted to go out and look at the stars, and I couldn't tell her why. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in some cases, we actually do have, I think, innate curiosities. Sure. You know, I mean, sure. I, I think that sort of gets back to the human race being kind of a super organism. You know, we're, we're not here just as individuals. We're part of a group that evolves together and survives together. Yeah. You know, we're a communal organism. And you need people that are excellent parents. You know, you, you need people that are, you know, really good at growing crops or healing the sick. And then apparently you need a couple of these <laughs> people on the edge that want to know what those lights in the sky are. Who know how to share a photon between two <laughs> telescopes that are separated by several miles oh, or whatever. So, so, so you, that one got you, did it? Yeah, yeah. So that was cool. Tell yeah, me about I that. Heard, yeah. yeah, yeah. So this was, um, this is from a, an episode of, tell me, what's it called it's again? Called Orbital Path. Okay, yeah, orbital. And I, I did not choose that title. By the way, I, it's, does, it does not roll off the tongue. <laughs> I, I wanted to call it Dead Star Diaries. I like that because because I'm a Dead Star product, and these are my thoughts. <laughs> and and so NPR said no, no. Dead so, is too negative. Well, I said, well I, I, it doesn't seem negative to me. <laughs> no, um, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm guessing that they, was they, their they chose the title Orbital Path, and anything that ends in a th just it's not good for radio. I don't even know what it means really. But anyway, yeah. so um, <laughs> however, it is a great show, and and in 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 the episode. I heard this was one in which um, you and your husband Andrew Andrew, yeah. Andrew are in a hot tub and talking about his work on telescopes that somehow super magnify their telescopic ability by sharing a photon or sharing yeah. photons between them. And it shouldn't work at distances. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, if you think of a particle of light as being something that has a location, it, it doesn't work. And uh, and so you sort of you sort of heard me teasing him a bit because he's a he's a very good solid logical scientist. He's actually more of an engineer than a scientist. And um, you know I keep trying to tell him this is seriously weird stuff that a photon can be in both your telescopes at the same time. And we're talking the whole photon, not right. part of it. You didn't split it into two. Right. It's the whole piece of light doing two things at once. Right. Being in two places at once, and it, it's a classic challenge about trying to to intuitively understand quantum mechanics. And you and you point out that people point to that kind of thing as evidence for multiple universes and he says basically, well, it just means that we don't really understand the way in which a photon exists, which is sort of saying the same thing in yeah, a different yeah. way, you know. You know, I think that the, <laughs> the thing that he teaches me, and I had to sort of sit back and really realize what he was getting at here, is he he never really liked the multiple universe idea. But he said, our universe is just a lot stranger than we can really mm. grasp. Our human brains don't really go there. Yeah. You know, I, I think that he, he definitely does have this sense that most scientists do, that time and space are not as simple as we perceive them. They're right. The idea that, that probably everything happens at once in kind of a big hole. Mm. And the photon is somehow able to be in both places at once, because even time doesn't really exist like you know, people think it does. I can understand the the issue with the multiple universe thing, not just because it's strange, but because in in a way, you know, a universe as we understand it 
may be as much a metaphor as New York City. You know, we process things, we make a story out of the visuals that are available to us, right? We've got this story of a city, we've got this story of our planet, of of the universe. And so multiple universes is a kind of like metaphorical extension of that concept to deal with stuff that we can't deal with. Like, you know, so it may very well be that down the road, the whole universe thing collapses into a different understanding if we could ever get there. Yeah, absolutely. I I do wonder if the human brain just doesn't have the capability. I mean, sort of looping back to uh, to transhumanism, you know, did you see that the movie uh, Her? I liked what happened to her. Like, I liked that weird place she went to in the end. That, That really resonated with me. I'm getting sort of goosebumps about it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, because the idea that, that AIs, well, for one thing, they wouldn't necessarily be our enemies, right? I mean, they, right. they start out as our operating systems. Some of them fall in love with us. But, but then what happens is that as they develop and as they evolve, they become aware of a larger reality that we just can't go. Yeah. And then the, you know, the, the, the wonderful, tragic, but kind of bittersweet ending, of course, spoiler, is that they all leave. And we, we, can't, even, we can't even describe where they went. They have a larger view. You know, they're not limited by the human senses, by the human nature of time and causality. Mm. You know, we we basically invented a brain that is better than our brains. Right. It sees the universe more as it really is, and they're just they're out of here. This isn't original to me, but you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of popular scientists that have talked about the fact that if there really are beings that can access other dimensions, mm-hmm. and we now are more and more sure that at, at least the three dimensions we perceive aren't the whole story. You know, it could be that you know the other beings are, are, are right here. I mean, just like like what do you mean? I mean, literally in the room, right, right around us, and and we would just never. They're in a direction we can't see. Right, which doesn't like for all you paranormal buffs doesn't necessarily <laughs> prove ghosts. No, but so the I think the, the problem for me is trying to find a scientific explanation of these things because we we don't understand what they are yet, right. and that there just isn't any data. And I know that people are annoyed by scientists when they say this. But you know, when when we don't have data, most of us kind of stop and 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 withhold judgment. But the thing is, you know, we are also human, right? And I've also had feelings and experiences I couldn't explain. Mm. My uh, my husband is one of those people who is kind of sensitive. I mean, we, we we call it the fairies. That he he sometimes will be walking through the woods and he'll want to avoid a place. Interesting. Or he'll he'll want to go to a place. Like we were we were we were walking. He's from England. There's lots of old places in England. And we were walking by a castle ruin and there was a, a well. And he was like, we're not going anywhere near that well. You know, he just didn't mm. like it at all. And then we were walking in uh, Salisbury last January. It was actually um, his mother's funeral we were there for. And um, he just, he found a spot in a field and his face just lit up with joy. I mean, he mm. finds these ley lines. <laughs> Some people would say, uh, yeah, I, yeah, no, yeah, I don't right, believe right, in right, ley right, lines. Right, right, right. But I mean, he, he finds these places and these energies and, and he he describes them to me so I mean the idea that that, that we ha- we've shut all of that off as scientists right. right there are a few places that for some reason I avoid and one of them actually Neil Gaiman and I have in common okay so told, we were by the way talking we're, we're about for Gaiman the audience this, yeah. we were talking about Neil Gaiman before uh, before the episode started on account of our <laughs> mutual love of his work absolutely yeah. mm-hmm. so have you heard of a place called the house on the rock in Wisconsin oh no okay well, you probably have to go there now. Um, it's it's a place that freaked Neil Gaiman out, and that's saying something. That is indeed. It was built by this eccentric millionaire. It sort of looks like um, kind of a simplified Frank Lloyd Wright 
structure. It's built out of natural stone, okay. and it's on a big stone promontory, kind of overlooking a river valley. All right. You know, big limestone pillars. You know, it's a really nice. I mean, Wisconsin doesn't have a lot of dramatic landscape, but it, but in this one area, the glaciers missed a little bit of the land. Okay. And there's sort of an older pre-glaciated terrain, which has beautiful hiking. It's a really nice place. Where Where is this? Well, it's called the Driftless Area. Okay. And it's basically west of Madison, west of the capital. Okay. And um, House on the Rock is this eccentric millionaire basically sort of dug this giant house into the rock. So most of it is in the dark and underground. It's under the rock. And he, he, he had so much money, he sent people out all over the world just to collect anything. You know, come back with the world's best collection of pipes, you know, like like smoking pipes wow. or, or dolls. He has a carousel underneath there. And you wind your way, <laughs> wow. ship models, um, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And you wind your way in the dark in this sort of vast in the rock house. And all my life... I have not been able to get anywhere near that. I wonder what they brought back. I mean, you, you send people out I to, have to, to go there. <laughs> you send people out to buy anything anywhere. They go to Japan. They go to Africa. They go to South America. They bring back. Well, I mean, they think it's mostly junk. I mean, it's not that okay. they necessarily bought all of this, you know, amazing stuff. So there stuff. wasn't, yeah, there wasn't they didn't necessarily know. mandate to curate <laughs> no, carefully. No, he, he sent people out that didn't know much about what they were <laughs> buying. They just, they just bought what sort of what they responded to. Wow. And, and I, I swear, I, I mean, so I also live in a squishy, irrational human brain. And I interpret these experiences as something to do with that, something right. that's happening in my mind. You know, I don't think that it's necessarily external, but I, I love a good ghost story as much as anybody. So half of my family, my dad's side, um, were science oriented. My grandfather, my dad's father was a microbiologist. And then my dad, PhD in science, and then and then went into other areas. But there's a kind of like empiricist skepticism that he's in the back of my brain. So like when I'm hearing places that you want to avoid, places that light you up, um, my dad in my brain is saying, yeah, it's probably, you know, reminiscent of something that cheered him Absolutely. up in childhood yeah. or frightened him in childhood or whatever. Or it could just be random. It could be some little kink in my brain, some little way the neuron arrange themselves. I, I, I mean, we don't understand the brain well enough to know why we're having these reactions. We, we shouldn't leap either to the most extreme and yes. extraordinary explanation, nor to the most mundane and dispiriting explanation <laughs> possible. I like that. Middle ground. <laughs> Moderation in everything, including skepticism. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, it's a really hard thing to describe to people. I, I actually... I actually do uh, some work. I'm getting ready to lecture with one of my friends. I, I've, I've sort of fallen in with the, with the Jesuits. Uh -huh. they, um, um, I've done a number of, of, of talks, uh, even with a person called Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory. Okay. Um, I was raised actually Protestant, and I, I still have a little bit of that reaction that Catholic people are a little odd, you know, the, the, all the Madonnas. I mean, I, sure, Catholic, sure. when I was a kid, I loved Catholic churches. They were so ornate and so beautiful. I, I understand that's not the, the most important thing about being Catholic, but um, they, they, <laughs> they, they kind of use me uh, in talks. I, I, I mean, it's lovely. I shouldn't say use me, but, but I, I'm sort You've of been the, kidnapped by the Jesuits. I'm so. sort of the safe, the safe, friendly atheist, right? Uh, gotcha. So you know, here I am, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm an atheist. <laughs> Ask me anything you want. You know, don't be polite. You know, let, mm. Let's talk about mm. what's difficult to deal with. Let's talk about what's frightening. Let's talk about the fact that I don't think that all religious experience is useless or that, you know, the communities that religion gives people are, are, are bad. You know, there's plenty of things about any organized religion I have some serious arguments with. But there's also things that I find very beautiful and very useful to people. So, you know, the, the students, you know, I'll go to some, you know, Catholic university and they'll, they'll get a chance to ask an atheist anything you want. Just let, let's just put it out there, right? 
I imagine some people are maybe hostile, but I would. You like... know, one on one, I I I actually encounter almost no hostility. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, every once in a while, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, seriously, you could have ninety conversations, and maybe you know, one or two, somebody would get hostile. One of the worst fights I ever got in with my dear sister was about was where I was espousing atheism, and she was she's agnostic, and she was basically like, "How can you? How can you just?" posit that there is nothing, that there is... And I guess, I mean, to me, that that might be a little bit of a semantic thing as to what is an agnostic versus what is an atheist. Yeah. Is it possible that there are, say, vast intelligences in the universe that we are not aware of that exist that might even seem godlike to us? I mean, yeah, maybe. Sure, yeah. But I mean, we, we don't have any evidence of that. You know, I, I, I sort of have my doubts that they have taken much notice of, of us <laughs> if they're there. But, you know, the idea that y- you can't possibly entertain anything that you don't know about that, that that's not that that's not what i mean either right. i mean you have an open mind about what the universe will reveal eventually Okay, well, I think this is a good place to go to the second part of the show, where we have these surprise clips chosen by the video team, which are conversation starters and could be on anything. And I'm I'm sure that based on how this has gone so far, that we'll have like lots of directions to go. Sounds good. Let's see. So this is Richard Prum. He's an evolutionary ornithologist with broad interest in avian biology. And the video is titled, The Evolution of Homosexuality, A New Theory. The diversity in uh, sexual attraction found in people is a fundamental aspect of human biology. Yet it's actually been poorly uh, uh, described or poorly theorized in in previous uh, evolutionary biology. I don't know if people know uh, so much about sociobiology specifically, but one way to get at that might be to talk about the definition of fitness, right, and how that led to uh, certain, certain views about the inevitability of uh, adaptation as, as a strong force. The beauty happens theory is the idea that ornament evolves merely because it's attractive or beautiful. Um, the beauty happens idea is contrasted with the more popular theory uh, that comes from Alfred Russell Wallace about the evolution of, uh, of ornament as a kind of practical indicator of mate quality. The aesthetic view of uh, evolution provides some um, really interesting insights into the evolution of, of human sexuality, and in particular, human sexual diversity. So um, individuals uh, that are attracted to the same sex are frequently imagined to evolve uh, because they provide help to their, uh, to their kin. That is, if there are some people in any social group uh, that are non-reproductive because of their sexual uh, preferences, then they'll be uh, helping with raising of their nieces and nephews. Right? Uh, this is sort of the helpful uncle hypothesis. Uh, the problem with that idea is that it should actually lead to a kind of uh, uh, asexual phenotype or an asexual behavior. It doesn't actually describe uh, uh, the evolution of sexual attraction itself. Well, the aesthetic uh, view of evolution uh, proposes that we should put subjective experience, that is the nature of animal and human desire, at the center of our scientific explanation. So uh, in order to explain same-sex attraction in people, uh, we need to actually ask how could same-sex attraction actually evolve? Well, in the book I propose that 
human same-sex attraction evolved specifically because it contributed to female sexual autonomy or to the freedom of choice. Right? What I mean by that is that in the case of female-female sexual relationships, uh, they could contribute to female alliances that could protect females uh, from sexual coercion uh, by uh, male uh, hierarchical groups. At the same time, I propose that male-male uh, sexual attraction uh, could have evolved because any social situation in which males have multiple sexual outlets uh, would have contributed to female freedom to move among the, uh, individuals in that social system uh, and to avoid coercion and, uh, and sexual violence. Uh, this is a new aesthetic theory of the evolution of same-sex behavior uh, in people, and I think it's one um, that deserves really serious consideration as we move forward. So um, the audience couldn't hear this, but b both of us had many different thoughts and reactions <laughs> while we were watching that. Okay. Um, do you want to start? Do you want to start? Wow. Um, yeah, uh, it's, that's a very complex explanation of, of why people have different sexual preferences. And uh, he, he started out talking about this idea of the friendly uncle, right? That uh, right. this was something that we were taught when I was in college, taking sociology. And you know, he, there was a class called human behavioral biology. I loved my non-physics and math classes. And so the physics and math classes, I was scared and confused. So I would take sociology and go, yes, you know, and I would like, I would, I'm sorry, I would ace it. And um, <laughs> I love these classes. And okay, that kind of makes sense, but it, it, it seems that it doesn't really sit very well with me. And But then he goes into this really complex thing about protecting women from sexual violence because of different large groups held together by homosexual Yeah, which, which, which posits that somehow, I mean, which sort of uh, assumes that that is, that is like an evolutionarily useful thing species-wide. I mean, yeah. obviously we would like for women to be free of sexual violence and, you know, have more autonomy from the, our perspective where we're sitting right now in 2018. But like from an evolutionary perspective, biological perspective, if we're looking at the level of the species, I'm not sure that the species was going for that. The thing that I keep coming back to when I hear stuff like this is I still have not been convinced there really is such a thing as gender. It's certainly not a binary thing. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that, you know, okay, so male on male attraction and female on female attraction or male and female attraction, this doesn't describe my mind or my experiences of sexual desire mm. at all. Hmm. And the therapists can say what they may about a, you know, a woman that went into science in a male-dominated field. Sure. You know, am I some sort of outlier? But I think that if I were to identify as anything, the, the word that people are using now is pansexual. We are human beings, and we are far more alike than we are different. Right. I mean, I mean, to me, the, the real question is kind of a non-question. Humans are attracted to humans. Right. And there are some mean statistical groups. But if I'm attracted to a trans woman, does right. that make me a lesbian? Um, sure. You know, am, am I attracted to a, a trans man? Oh, that, does that mean I'm heterosexual? Yeah. I mean, I have had relationships and, and fallen deeply in love with nearly every type of human you can describe. <laughs> and it, it, it just, 
this stuff really not with an AI yet. Though. Well, hey, I mean, so I mean, that, I mean, honestly, I think that would be part of pansexuality as well, yeah, right? right? I mean, it's a little bit of the story of the movie Her. Mm. You know that you can have sexual feelings for something that isn't even human, yeah. you know, and or may not even have a body. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- this this sort of binary description of how this is supposed to work and, yeah, and, yeah. and evolutionarily what might have been the advantage. Well, so I want to unpack some of what you're saying. You know, when you look at sort of, I don't know, stereotypes of gender performance, right? I don't fall into a lot of the male stereotypes in the sense that I was more drawn to literature. I did better on verbal than on math, on the SATs. Allegedly, men Boys do better in math in general, didn't like sports, drawn to poetry, whatever. So that's that's a sort of like, that's the sort of gender performance end of things, like a little bit like what you were talking about in terms of, um, or gender culture, I guess. Yeah. Like when you were talking about being drawn to science or traditionally male-dominated fields. And then there's sexuality, which overlaps with that, but may also be a different thing. I'm not, I don't think I've ever been attracted to a biological man. Like that just, you know, which isn't to say it couldn't happen. (laughs) And I'm not, if it happened, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, what is happening to me? You know, I'm cool with that and all, but that hasn't been my experience. So I don't know. Now you have to take it away because I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) Well, I think... (laughs) I mean, this is sort of where those those statistical, uh, you know, lumps come up. That that I I think I know if you were to sort of grab me and say, the people I have fallen most deeply in love with, and the people that I have had most extreme sexual desire for, have been men. What will turn my head most of the time on the street, you know, are, are men. I mean, that that's sort of the reaction that I have. I, I think that you know, a lot of times we have been trained to not pay attention and to kind of disavow. Anything that doesn't fit that pattern, right? And and you know, occasionally you meet a person, and you know, free of any gender description, you start to fall in love with them. You start to be attracted to them. You know, you right. you wonder what you'd like to have sex with them. I mean, you it it's. I think that a lot of times we sort of stop that. You don't have to be attracted to anybody except who you're attracted to. Sure. The the thing goes back to the idea of human. I think the explanation as for why quote-unquote homosexuality or heterosexuality exist evolutionarily. I think our brains are neutral, you know, and, and yes, I mean, we do have biological ways of reproducing. You know, men and women have the ability to create children. But we, we, we arrive on the planet with basically the same brains. Mm. And I, I think that, sure, hormones can influence, culture can influence, evolutionary strategy can influence who we're attracted to. But that 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 underlying strata, I think, is much broader than people want to, mm. to really think about. Yeah, I mean, I mean, evolutionary biologists are gonna want to lean toward the idea that that reproduction is kind of the core drive, right? More than almost anything else, and so that's that's how they're then. But like, I want to question one thing that he said scientifically, which is. Okay, the uncle, the what is it, friendly, friendly uncle, uncle or yeah, whatever yeah. explanation for hom- for male homosexuality doesn't necessarily make sense because what was the argument? It was that, Th- that they would just become asexual as opposed to sexual. They would become asexual, yeah. and that, that, that that's, that's a misunderstanding yeah, of how um, 
selection, yeah, I mean, natural while, selection. While, while your uncles are intensely in love with each other and having really hot sex together but not reproducing, they have time to care for and, yeah, the and, rest and, of the and, tribe. And if, yeah. indeed, if indeed <laughs> these things were differentiated yeah. biologically, which you're problematizing, you know, mm-hmm. but if, if that were the case that suddenly homosexual men appeared in history, natural selection would say that it's perfectly reasonable that then that could be advantageous to the species in the friendly uncle way. That's Lamarckianism to say that that they should have appeared as asexual, you know, as if natural selection invents the exact right type of thing as opposed to things happening randomly and then being beneficial. It, it also, to me, I mean, I am an example of a quote unquote friendly uncle. Okay. Okay. For some reason, and and again, I I don't think this is actually anything that has to do with a bad childhood or anything like that. Um, I have never wanted children. Mm. I mean, I mean, not for five minutes together have I ever really wondered. Yeah, you know, what in it would our be like to have a child. Exchange. You yeah. said um, I don't want you, kids. You no. said you wouldn't bring them I'm not, into the not world. I'm not bringing anybody else yeah. into the world, and yeah. the world is a wonderful place. But something about the idea of raising children, not for me from the beginning, right, from a child. And um, never regretted it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, certainly there have been times where I've thought if I had more than one lifetime, and you know, I, I would be interesting to see what a family would have been like, you know, what mm-hmm. children would have been like. But this is a decision. This is one of the decisions I'm most comfortable with in my life that I didn't have children. So you would, what sort of an evolutionary failure is that, right? I mean, um, right. My, my 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 family happens to be very fertile. I mean, there's the, there's, there's a Monty Python joke. I mean, my parents basically had sex twice and they had two kids. <laughs> you know, I the, I come from a very fertile, you know, sort of Eastern European stock, and I'm very interested in sex. And so I, I would have gotten pregnant early because that's what you do before birth control. Right. But in my case, the insertion of birth control sort of laid bare this this thing that that in fact I didn't want children. In mm. fact. I'm an evolutionary failure that way. But then the question is, do people like me contribute in other ways? And why is the desire for children turned off in me? Because, I mean, as a super organism, you could say, you know, that humanity needs some people that are pushing the boundaries of technology and exploring and discovering. And you also really need people that are good parents, that that are really interested in raising children. But, I mean, for sure, when you don't have kids, you have a certain <laughs> amount more of disposable yeah, time yeah. to do with what you want, research That's, or whatever. So, well, and and and, and um, this is in no way, shape, or form uh, implying that people who have children can't be great of researchers. Course, of course, yeah, of course. nothing like that. But but I'm saying, you natural inclination wise, there are a lot of us that don't fall into this. Not just the sexual binary, but the parental binary, you know, right. that, that we automatically want children because that's what a human does because that's the evolutionary advantage. The insertion of birth control really, that really that really opened something up, didn't it? That, that in fact, a lot of us didn't want kids. I mean, the evolutionary explanation of things where it becomes limited is that it it sort of tends to be conservative in a way. It just tends to bring us back to essentialism about what we are supposed to be, as opposed to leaving room for all the variations of what we can imagine ourselves to be, how people actually experience themselves, what we might become in the future. You know, so, I mean, in the end, it it always leaves me a bit cold for that reason, because it seems to force people or put pressure on people to conform to some idea of humanity that's based on things that may or may not be useful to us anymore. I guess, you know, to me, the best thing that I've heard that kind of describes 
all the diversity of being a human, you know, the diversity of sexuality, the diversity of wanting children, the diversity of personalities is game theory. Mm. That, you know, the way you're going to get the, uh, the best response, and you can actually prove this mathematically, is to have a huge diversity of input. Gotcha. And, you know, the way an entire species evolves is not that you have carbon copies of everybody that are great reproducers and are really into having children. And I know that the, the friendly uncle is sort of a, a, a little bit of, of an extension <laughs> of that. But, but then there's, the, the, in fact, we're much more diverse than we even know. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't like the words introvert and extrovert. I think those are too simple, but that's one thing. You know, do you want children or not? Who are you attracted to? Yeah. What are you curious about? What are you naturally curious about? Where does your mind take you? You know, sexuality is so often separated. It's something that you either feel shame for or you use it in advertising. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I just I hate the fact that this just isn't part of life. There's nothing more about it than, than 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 breathing and eating and being interested in science and you know wanting to you know explore the world and see what Paris is like and then there are the people we want to have sex with, and it it's just 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 leave it right. There's a yeah. huge diversity of desire of input of, of of what you want out of life, and and the idea that we put labels on it for whatever reason like humanity doesn't seem to be able to get over it and just kind of let itself be with this subject. Well, know? I mean, I always said, you know, I mean, <laughs> science, science basically, I mean, all of culture, you know, art and, and philosophy and science and technology and, I mean, to some extent war, I mean, I think they're, they're all ways to waste time until we can have sex again. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think some of them are, are, are better ways of using your time than others. War often sort of eliminates the possibility of ever having sex again. It's, it's a bad thing. One more surprise video real quick. Sure. And then we'll, we'll wind it up. I always, um, whenever they break people up into men and women groups, I mean, even people that are being supportive of women, right. you know, make sure they have their own space. It's like, well, I actually gender identify as a man. I mean, I, I, just, I, like, to, I like to fuck with people. I, I, I don't want to be put in that, in that category. I don't want to be called a woman. Don't want to be referred to as a woman. I, I'm the one, I like using they, right? Human, I can admit to. That's about as far as I'm going to go. One of the more interesting discussions, which I should bring in some of my uh, trans friends, I'm having dinner with one tonight. They really identify with their gender. You know, people have gone through huge uh, sacrifice yeah, 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 yeah. to claim their gender. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, my friend tonight, you know, who's a man, that's important to him. Yeah. There's some really wonderful people in, in astronomy and science who, and, and, and they, they've actually asked me not to use the word transgender because to them, they, they have established their true gender. Mm. You know, I'm not a trans woman. I'm a woman. I always was a woman. Got you. And so, I mean, we, we find ourselves with a lack of good vocabulary for these things. And, and that's when I go back to human. Yeah. There's a diversity of human experiences, of gender, of sexuality, of, of, of any sort of identity you want to name. And, and don't try to fit it into boxes. So this is Ingrid Fettel Lee, and she is a former design director for IDEO or IDEO, founder of a blog, etc. And her video is called now I don't want to say her. Like I don't know. Like, anyway, um, <laughs> some people the, the video. Maybe she's. I would like it. to go to a, a, a world where that doesn't happen. Yeah, they 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 have a neat video. This person, Ingrid Fetel Lee. Yes. They and the video is called uh, has been called by Big Think. Minimalism is killing us. Reawaken your senses. Bring back joy. And this may connect with what we were talking about earlier about color. So let's see. Early on in my study of joy, I learned about a an artist named Arakawa and a poet named Madeleine Gins who believed that the dull gray boxes that we often live in in the modern world were 
actually killing us. And so they set out to create um, a, a set of apartments that they believed would reverse aging. And they called this uh, the reversible destiny lofts. And the basic theory is that, uh, you know, our bodies are sort of lulled, our senses are lulled into kind of a stupor by living in these um, buildings that have sort of flat floors and uh, neutral surfaces, and that we need to sort of shake up our senses more often. And so they created this, uh, these apartments. They have sloping floors. They feel like um, they have these like goosebumps over their surface that almost look like um, dimples on the skin of a giant. That's sort of the way that I describe them. And when you um, when you walk through this apartment, um, you find that you know you have to kind of hold on to the edges to make sure you don't fall over. Um, so it's constantly testing your balance. Fortunately, instead of having regular furniture, there are just poles everywhere to help you sort of navigate your way around the place. And all of the rooms are a little bit different than traditional rooms. So instead of having, um, you know, just normal uh, rectangular shaped rooms, uh, they have a sphere uh, is one of the rooms. There's a cylinder. The bathroom is a cylinder and it's sort of lying on its side. So you have to scramble over this floor to get to the bathroom. And everything is painted in dozens of different colors. So this is a little much for everyday life, but it's a really interesting experience in having your senses tested. And what I found as I came back in, out into the world, I, I was a little bit worried that I would find that everything else looked kind of dull by comparison. But in fact, it sort of fires up your senses and wakes them all back up again. You come back out into the world almost more attuned to your surroundings than when you left. The audience couldn't see this, but there were a couple images embedded in that video of this apartment that my mother would absolutely hate and that I oh, would love, yes. love to have, <laughs> um, which, which, you know, is like incredibly brightly colored and there were like nooks and crannies everywhere for like reading or whatever. It was like almost like a, a jungle gym or something. It looked marvelous. I am routinely uh, envious of my cats because I, I, they, they have these wonderful cat trees and there are all these little boxes to go into or big open trays you can sun yourself on, you know, things you can scratch, things you can climb on. And I've said many, many times to my husband, if we ever build a house, can can we just have a room that's a big human-sized cat tree? Nice. I mean, I, I, would, I would he go for that? Would oh, he yeah, enjoy that yeah. as well? Well, I don't. I don't think he himself would would be up in the cat tree very much. <laughs> but I, um, all my life, I have wished for more sensory input when it comes to surroundings. So I actually agree with this person entirely. I'm, I'm from Wisconsin, and uh, one of the, the the famous sons of Wisconsin is Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, sure. who built, built these very interesting architectural homes. And they asked him, uh, you know, one, at one point, you know, so so, you know, what what is the purpose of your architecture? And he said to save the human soul. Mm. And I think this is really, really true. Um, I have gone through a lot of trouble and expense in my life to live in architecturally interesting homes. Oh, nice. I, yeah. I, I cannot live in a box, except if it's a really coolly designed, like, Ikea apartment. You know, you can do all kinds of creative things. But, right. oh, God, a bad, a bad house destroys me. Our apartment is architecturally interesting by accident, like because it, it was a factory mm. and they converted it. And so the and they did a horrible I mean, like, you know, the cheapest, worst contracting job every the floors move around and whatever. But the angles of things just because I guess of how the, the bones of the factory were. 
are interesting. So like it's not you never feel bored or trapped in a box there. My mother and her husband built a geodesic dome house and it was a very sophisticated. I mean we're not talking like you know sort of hippie commune, right. know, very sophisticated house. And the inside was all open, all the way to the ceiling. And there was a loft that stuck out, which was their bedroom, but it wasn't enclosed. So you, oh, you, could, cool. you could see pretty much the entire dome. And there were, there were neat little nooks and crannies that you could put yourself into if you wanted to. But, but then the, the house was mainly open. And I always felt very peaceful there and actually very well protected. Speaking of protected, you know, um, and and actually weirdly connecting to astronomy here, like when I was like right after I graduated college, which was probably the most unprotected moment of my life. And I had an apartment in the east, like on the cusp of the East Village. There was a loft bed in the living room and there was a walk-in kind of closet thing that was cave-like. And so I tr- I put my clothes like to the front of, I did a sort of Narnia thing. Like I put my clothes to the front of the closet. I hung like strips of fabric down as a kind of like threshold into a different world. And then I would go in there and I had like one of those little mini planetariums in there. Oh, and yeah, I, it was yeah. just sort of like, it was special like to have a cave to go into. Yeah. I, I use caves as, as, as definitely a kind of therapy for myself. You know, when, when things go wrong in my life or something very bad happens to me, I'll make a, a pillow fort and I'll, or you know, some sort of blanket tent. And the act of making that and then also enjoying sort of this enclosed feeling, this protected feeling, I find very helpful. And uh, you know, I think that the thing that I like so much about, say, Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture is that it's a combination of very small, almost claustrophobic, comforting caves mm. and then big open spaces as well. And so you, your mood shifts. You know, there are times yeah. you want expansion. There's times you want to, to really kind of hide yourself away. And um, I think that you know one of the things about this sort of creative architecture is allow for different moods. You know, I mean, in the video we saw, sometimes you want to be in the yellow spherical room, right. and sometimes you want to be in in the green, you know, cylindrical room. Respect your moods. You know, you find out what you're feeling and and how you want to express that in your surrounding. And some place you could really do this deliberately is, um, you know, our homes, but also our workplaces. Right. You know, being really creative in very different workplaces. You know, very stimulating workplaces. I need my closed door office sometime. I, I really sure, do. I, sure. I want. I want. I don't yeah. want an all open plan office. Yeah. But then. Um, um, just recently, in fact, just this week, I was at a leadership training course at Goddard, and they were using a, a repurposed library. It had been a traditional sort of 1950s library, and they've turned it into one of these very open, but but you can change the spaces. There, there, are, there are lots of walls you can slide and, and a neat little pod, you know, couches you can get into. You can work by yourself. You can work in groups. The whole thing is very variable and changeable. That's cool. And I, I like that. I find myself going there. But, you know, the, the other part of minimalism, I think that sometimes we're not even aware of that, that I hate, is minimalism in clothing. Um, we mm. we wear. Right, right. I mean, you Very know, drab. men yeah. wear suits. You know, I mean, women have a little bit more diversity, which I think is one of the, the worst parts of sexism, quite honestly. <laughs> um, you know, my, my husband would love to wear, he's told me, um, you know, really flamboyant clothing. We used to work at a Renaissance fair. Oh, cool! And um, we we were we were very so it's it's not the sort of thing you're thinking of because these days Renaissance fairs are much more of a fantasy fair. Sure. Well, I went to Renaissance fairs in Maryland when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. So so, so I, I was at the Maryland Renaissance fair two weeks ago. Um, those fairs, people are wearing sort of gypsy clothes, you know, things that are kind of loose and bodices. Right. So so Andrew and I were part of a an acting troupe. 
that tried to accurately portray the court of Elizabeth I. Nice. And we wore completely authentic Elizabethan costumes. They, they weighed about 25 pounds. Wow. There was no cleavage. You were covered all the way up to the throat with ruffs that we made because you couldn't buy them. Corsets. Oh, yeah. definitely corsets. Yeah. Although um, the Elizabethan corset wasn't as extreme as the Victorian okay. corset. Okay. But yeah, definitely corsets. And then big pads around your hips to, to carry all those sure. skirts. And... Um, and then, and Andrew was wearing Elizabethan um, uh, men clothing, which you know he has the the puffy pants and the tights and the boots over his knees and the cape. They're fabulous. And, they're, oh, they're fabulous. He comes to life, right? <laughs> he, he comes to life, right? And you know, yeah. I, I think that to me, I mean, people would would put me in an insane asylum, but but I would like to be wearing at any given time some huge silk gown with a giant rustling skirt. Yeah. I feel like there was a moment in 1969 where it was like possible, you know? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I, like when I look at the way Jimi Hendrix dressed or something, like yeah. if I could dress like that every day with like a crazy silk scarf and I mean, there's actually nothing stopping me except me. Well, no, it, it's I not would, just you, it's the culture, right? Well, it's I, the I mean, culture, but what would they do? Fire me? Like I'm not going to have a podcast anymore? I mean, People you know, might react to you differently. They would I, think I, I guess that's what we, why we do this. We They would, they would think it was pretentious and that's yeah. what's annoying yeah, like you yeah. know it, it's it's like why can't we be playful and yeah in our spaces and our clothing why would that be pretentious that's you know? a really interesting observation that <laughs> you know because I, I i dread the idea that people would judge me as pretentious yeah or trying to get attention or you know trying to take something away from somebody else but what does my larking about in a huge silk gown do i mean why why is that if anything, dangerous. it should maybe bring delight. I mean, it should either be neutral or delightful. You know. Anyway, I personally would be delighted if the next time I see you, you're in a very flamboyant silk gown. You so. might be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I may just do that. <laughs> Michelle Thaler, I have enjoyed this very much, and I feel like I could talk for eight more hours with you, but our time has come to an end. Thank you so much for being on Think Again. It was great to be here. Thank you. By the way, I really think Michelle's Hot Tub Physics show is cool, and there's a couple episodes still online, and I think you should hear them. And I don't know why people don't understand what's good and why some good things don't last. It just doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, I want to hear from you, the listeners. I would love it if you could send me a short voice memo, a minute or so in length, sharing a story about how something that we talked about on the show connects to your life. How it resonated with you, maybe taught you something, maybe made you uh, think again. Just record a voice memo with any smartphone and email it to me at jason at bigthink.com and let me know if I have your permission to play it on the show. We'll be back next week with the director and subject of Family in Transition, an amazing new Israeli documentary about a father of four who became a woman and how her family changed too. See you then.